Let's open in prayer, and uh, we'll get started here. Father, I just uh, thank you and praise you for this time to come together here, to gather together as a group of believers, to uh, come into your presence in a special way, to uh, dig into your word, to learn more of you, uh, to draw closer to you. And Lord, I just ask that you would uh, use the proclamation of your word uh, in a powerful way, Lord, that... uh, Uh, You would empower the uh, speaking of your word, Lord, that you would keep me from uh, speaking error, Lord, that I would uh, proclaim your word with clarity and boldness and speak your truth uh, to those here present. And Lord, I just ask that you would uh, use your word to bring conviction of sin, uh, to bring encouragement, to bring... uh, edification, and Lord, that you would stir us up as a body uh, to greater love for you, uh, greater love for one another, and Lord, greater love for the lost. In Jesus Christ's holy name, amen. Well, good morning. I'm uh, I'm Dale Young, and I'll be uh, sharing with you this morning. I'm filling in for Woody, and uh, it's my turn, and I was thinking, you know, how do we follow up last week? You know, we had a great Seder dinner on Friday night, and that was wonderful. We had a great sunrise service and a wonderful Easter service and then spring break. And, uh, you know, we've uh, finished the book of James, so I was considering, you know, what do I share on next? And, uh, you know, some of our uh, recent uh, messages have been on evangelism and uh, the Holy Spirit, and as I was considering different passages that dealt with that, I read this introduction in a commentary by James Montgomery Boyce uh, to the book of Acts. And uh, I, you know, looked at that, and I was thinking, you know, this would be a great follow-up. It's kind of like Paul Harvey's, you know, and now for the rest of the story. Or to put it more accurately, the continuing uh, story of Christ's work in his church. And this passage is a link between the resurrection and the birth of the church. So let's read uh, this passage in Acts. It's Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. It says, The first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up to heaven, after he had, by the Holy Spirit given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. To these he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. Gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which he said, you heard of from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses 
both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the earth. And after he had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. They also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. So, Acts here is the second volume of a two-volume history written by the companion of the Apostle Paul. The first volume is the Gospel according to Luke. We know that they belong together because the introductions link them. The book of Luke begins with a dedication to a man whom he calls most excellent Theophilus. And Theophilus means a friend of God or loved by God. And Luke mentions Theophilus again in Acts, referring also to Luke's former book, our first account here in verse 1. Acts picks up where his gospel left off, providing details of the birth and early years of the church that Jesus had promised to build. Together, the two books, Luke and Acts, form an account of how the followers of Jesus turned the world upside down by taking the good news of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ to the end of the earth. There in, in uh, the second part there of, of uh, verse 1, he says, About all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up to heaven. This here is a very important statement. It, dividing the work of Christ into two great branches. The one embracing his work on earth, the other his subsequent work from heaven. His work on earth he was physically present for. It was the beginning. His work on earth was complete when he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high and is recorded in the Gospels. His work from heaven is by his spirit. It is a continuance of the work he began his work from heaven will continue until his second coming. And only the beginning of that work is recorded here in the book of Acts. I like how one commentator summed up this. He said, Hence the grand history of what Jesus did and taught does not conclude with his departure to the Father. But Luke begins it in a higher strain. For all the subsequent labors of the apostles are just an exhibition of the ministry of the glorified Redeemer himself because they were acting under his authority and he was the principle that operated in them all. Verse 2, After that, after he had by the Holy Spirit given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. The Spirit, you know, it says, After that, by the Holy Spirit. The Spirit was the source and power of Jesus' earthly ministry. Luke chapter 3 verse 22 says, And the Holy Spirit descended upon you in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came out of heaven. You are my beloved Son, in you I am well pleased. Orders or commandments are authoritative New Testament truths that Jesus gave his chosen apostles. 
The Holy Spirit accompanies his teaching, empowering the disciples, so that the world rightly understands it and obeys it. In John chapter 14, verse 26, he says, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. And in Matthew 28, verses 18 to 20, and Luke 24 to 49, where we see the Great Commission, Christ tells his apostles to go into the world as witnesses, but they were to remain in Jerusalem until they were clothed with power from on high. So Christ's earthly work is done. On the cross, Christ said, it is finished. He finished the work of redemption. Nothing can be added to that. We add nothing to that. Salvation is a finished work. But the proclamation of the glories of that finished work of redemption were only begun by Christ and the apostles. Christ has unfinished work that we are to be a part of as his witnesses. For we, Ephesians 2 verse 10 says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. God has works for us. We're to walk in them. We are created in Christ Jesus. If we have been placed into the body of Christ, He is that source of energy that flows in us. You know, He should start outflowing from us. So how do we help finish the work of Christ? Uh, John MacArthur gives a couple of illustrations that will help us see the seriousness of this task. Um, Sir Christopher Wren uh, was the architect of St. Paul's Cathedral. And uh, during the construction, a London Times reporter was interviewing some of the workers, and he asked each worker what he was doing. The first man replied, putting this rock in the slot. The second man replied, I am earning a day's living. While the third man replied, I'm helping Sir Christopher Wren build St. Paul's Cathedral. You know, so how are we doing in our Christian walk? Are we just sticking the rock in the slot, just kind of filling time? Are we just trying to earn rewards in heaven? Or do we understand that the Christian life is all about helping the Lord Jesus Christ finish the work that he began, you know, proclaiming his excellencies as we sang in the songs earlier. First Peter 2.9, it says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You know, we're to be proclaiming the excellencies of Christ. So, consider another illustration. What if you were asked to put the finishing touches on a sculpture by Michelangelo or a painting by Rembrandt? You know, just pick up a chisel and finish the face of a sculpture. Or to pick up a brush and finish the eyes of a masterpiece. You know, would that be a sobering thought? You know, what would you say? You know, I don't know how to do that. I, I, would, I would ruin it, you know. So just think. You know, if, if that's a sobering thought to you, think of it this way. Then how do you respond when Christ asks us to help finish his masterpiece? You know, what do we need? You know, you know, we think 
Christ has asked us to help finish his masterpiece. You know, first thought that comes to my mind, you know, are we able? We can't. We can't do it on our own. So what do we need to be able to help finish Christ's work? Now, 1 Corinthians uh, 3, verses 10 to 5, you know, says, According to the grace of God which was given to me, like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation, and another is building upon it. But each man must be careful how he builds on it. For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident. For the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire. And the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through the fire. So, it's a serious task we've been asked to do to help complete Christ's masterpiece. So what do we need to be able to help Christ's masterpiece? Verse 3 says, To those he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days. Well, the first thing we need would be a proper manifestation. Christ appeared to his disciples at special and repeated intervals so that they might know that he was alive. 1 Corinthians 15, uh, 5-8 lists some of those appearances. He says, And that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. After that he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain alive until now. But some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. The word used for proof here in the text and I won't check Marios, it looks at demonstrable evidence in contrast with evidence provided by witnesses. In other words, the resurrection was proven to the disciples by touch, sight, and feel. Luke 24, 39 and 40 says, See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself, touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. So in order to carry out the work of Christ, you have to have a vital relationship with Christ. And that can only happen if you are confident that he is alive. 1 Peter 1.8 says, Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though... You do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. He makes himself visible to us by the indwelling spirit. And we have the record of the appearances to the disciples in the Bible. If you don't feel, if you don't believe that Christ is alive, that he is in your life, that he has proven himself to have risen from the dead, you will not have proper manifestation of Christ in your life to get excited about. I do not believe the apostles would have chosen, you know, a life of poverty, persecution, and martyrdom if they were not fully convinced that Christ was alive. 
You know, how many times we hear, oh, the, the disciples uh, snuck in and carried the Bible off. You know, yeah, we got people today that will die for something that's not true, but they believe it to be true. You know, if the disciples stole the body, you know, would they die for that? Would they die for a lie? Would they choose a life of suffering, persecution, poverty? You know, I don't think so. So, verse 3, speaking of the thing, speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. So, the second thing that is needed is the proper message. Christ was always teaching his disciples. Here, the teaching is taking place after the resurrection, during the 40-day period before his ascension to the Father. In Luke 24, uh, let's read that, 24, 25 to 27, gives, demonstrates this. It says, And he said to them, O foolish men and slow of heart, to believe in all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things? And to enter into his glory, then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. And in verses 44 through 49, now he said to them, these of this chapter, Luke, Luke chapter 24, verse 44. Now he said to them, these are my words, which I spoke to you while I was still with you that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations, beginning from Jerusalem. And behold... I am sending forth the promise of my Father upon you, but you are to stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. So, here we see that Jesus was demonstrating the validity and nature of his Messiahship. He was explaining to them the Old Testament from the perspective of his resurrection. And he was teaching the, uh, the responsibility of his disciples to bear witness to what had happened among them in fulfillment of Israel's hope. You know, they were looking for that Messiah, and he was that fulfillment. So in order to finish the work of Christ, we must know what the content of, the mess- of his message was, and that message is found in his word. We cannot be ignorant of Christ's teachings. Uh, Hosea uh, chapter 4, verse 6 says, My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. You know, we need to know what Christ's teachings are so that uh, as we have opportunity to share with folks, you know, we can, as First Peter 3.15 says, we can be able to give a reason that a hope for the hope that is within us. And uh, we know this is God's word. We need to know it. Second Peter chapter 1, verses 16 through 21 says there that, you know, Scripture, it was recorded by men but they were removed by the Holy Spirit. And so, this is God's Word. And we need to know God's Word because as Romans 10:17 tells us, so faith, Romans 10:17, so faith comes from hearing and hearing by the Word of Christ. So, 
verses 4, 5, and then the first part of 8. Since gathering them, gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with fire, but you will be baptized, or with water. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And verse 8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. The next thing you need is you need the proper power. You have the proper manifestation. You know I'm alive. You've seen me and touched me. You have the proper message, scripture, and three years of my teaching. Now wait for the gift of the Holy Spirit from the Father. Do not do things in your own energy and strength. If we're to be effective witnesses for Christ, we need special power. And when the Spirit, when the Holy Spirit falls upon us in power, our witness to Christ comes with deep conviction. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 5 says, Our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. When the Holy Spirit falls upon you in power, your witness to Christ comes with self-denying courage and boldness. Acts chapter 4, verse 31 says, And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Spirit and spoke the word of God with boldness. And in Second Timothy chapter 1, verses 7 to 8, since God did not give us a spirit of timidity, but a spirit of power and love and self-control, do not be ashamed then of testifying to our Lord, but take your share of suffering for the gospel in the power of God. And when the Holy Spirit falls upon you in power, your witness to Christ comes with convincing wisdom or irresistible words. In Acts chapter 6, verse 5, it gives the description of Stephen as full of faith in the Holy Spirit. In the same chapter, verse 8, says he was full of grace and power. And in chapter 6, verse 10, what does it say? Stephen's witness, he was witnessing to the Jews from Alexandria, Cilicia, Asia. And what does it say? They could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit which... They could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he spoke. So when the Holy so, you know, it comes with that conviction, with convincing words. And when the Holy Spirit falls upon you in power, your witness to Christ will be more effective. Uh, Acts 11, verse 24, speaking of Barnabas, describes him. And it says, He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a large company was added to the Lord. It says, you know, this power is from God. Christ is saying to his disciples, I want you to finish my work. I'll give you all the tools you need and just to make it possible, I'm going to put my Holy Spirit inside of you and he will do it through you if you will yield to him. You know, you just think back on that analogy of the sculpture. You know, if the Holy Spirit is indwelling you, you know, He's filling, filling you, and 
guiding your hands, guiding your feet. And so, you know, you're able to help that. You know, if the, you know, here, finish this masterpiece, but I'm going to guide your hand, you're a lot more uh, confident that you're going to be able to do that. And I'd just uh, like to read this short little article here, uh, speaking of some of the movements in, in church history when God's power was demonstrated. And uh, it says, Voices Behind the Student Volunteer Movement. And this was back in the 1800s. Uh, it says, According to John R. Mott, Arthur T. Pearson, a Presbyterian minister was responsible for sounding the trumpet that started the student volunteer movement in missions a hundred years ago. In 1882, Pearson wrote in the Missionary Review that three things were needed to finish the Great Commission and evangelize the world. The whole church needed to be involved. Evangelistic zeal was needed in the lives of believers. And a baptism of the power of the Holy Spirit was needed. On this last point, he wrote, To do this work in 20 years, we must get more gospel, more vitality. He says, The church has money, brains, organization, rivers of prayer, and oceans of sermons, but she lacks in power. You know, I think that's something we see in our day, doesn't it? Isn't it? You know, except I would put in there, maybe we're uh, a little lacking in prayer too. You know, not only, but you know, you know, we have money, we've got brains, we've got organizations, got oceans of sermons, but maybe we're a little lack in lax in prayer. And we're definitely lax in the power of God, power of the Holy Spirit. And it says here that uh, uh, in 1891, when the first international convention of the student volunteer movement gathered in Cleveland, Ohio, Pearson's friend A.J. Gordon gave the keynote address and entitled it, The Holy Spirit in Missions. He said, Now, dear friends, all missionary success at home or abroad depends upon the Holy Spirit. And I, I say it deliberately, the personal preparation of the Holy Spirit is the greatest need in our ministry in this country and in foreign fields. And then he gave illustration after illustration from church history how Christians sought the outpouring of God's Spirit and how their ministry is blessed. And, uh, you know, an illustration I'd like to give here is uh, this little booklet. It's called When the Spirit's Fire Swept Korea, and it's uh, by Jonathan Goforth. He was a pioneer mission missionary to China. And uh, the folks, you know, seeing this lack of power, they'd seen revivals in other places, and they decided that they were going to get together and start praying for revival. And uh, so they, they met together, And it says, after we had prayed about a month, a brother proposed that we stop the prayer meeting saying, we have prayed about a month and nothing unusual has come of it. We are spending a lot of time. I don't think we are justified. Let us go on with our work as usual and each pray at home as we find it convenient. The proposal seemed plausible. However, the majority decided to continue to the prayer meeting, believing that the Lord would not deny Pin Yang what he had granted to Cassia. 
they decided to give more time to prayer instead of less. With that view, they changed the hour from 12 to 4 o'clock. Then they were free to pray until supper time if they wished. There was little else than prayer. If anyone had an encouraging item to relate, it was given as they continued in prayer. They prayed about four months, and they said that the result was that all forgot about being Methodist and Presbyterians. They only realized that they were all one in the Lord Jesus Christ. That was true church union. It was brought about on the knees. It would last. It would glorify the Most High. About that time, Mr. Swalen, along with Mr. Blair, visited one of the country outstations. While conducting the service in the usual way, many commenced weeping and confessing their sins. Mr. Swalen said he had never met with anything so strange, and he announced a hymn, <clears throat> hoping to check the wave of emotion which was sweeping over the audience. He tried several times, but in vain, and in awe, stand in awe of you, right, as we sang, and in awe he realized that another was managing that meeting, and he got as far out of sight as possible. The next morning, he and Mr. Blair returned to the city rejoicing. All praised God and believed that the time to favor Pin Yang, Ping Yang was close at hand. It had now come to the first week of January, 1907. You know, that's what Christ is telling them here. If you're going to do anything good for me, you need to wait for an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. You need to wait for the power of the Holy Spirit. And there's, you know, other instances here. People like, you know, it started popping up everywhere. There was revival, people repenting. But certain places it wasn't happening. And they're like, what's wrong, what's wrong? And then finally one of the people would stand up, I have sin in my life. And they would confess that sin and make it right. And then the Spirit would move. So, you know, if you're lacking power in your life, make sure you don't have sin in your life. And keep that sin confessed. You know, and, I, and then like we've said, Woody said, others have said, you know, we're not talking about sinless perfection. But when we've, you know, it's a narrow path we're on. And when we fall off that path, you know, we get up go to Christ for cleansing and get back on that path. We don't sit there and, and waller into the waller in the mud hole you fell in. Verses 6 and 7. So when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom of Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority. So the next thing you need is you need the proper mystery. The disciples knew from the passages in Ezekiel 36 and Joel 2, which speak of the kingdom of God and the Spirit being poured out upon them, revealing them, that that was a symbol that the kingdom would be restored to Israel soon. The disciples uh, were expecting a political restoration. They were expecting Christ to set up his kingdom, and they were going to be part of this political kingdom. When Christ, he didn't, he didn't rebuke them. 
He just simply said to them, it was not for them to know. Mark thirteen thirty two says, But of that day or hour, no one knows. We do not know when Christ will set up the kingdom on earth. So we should be ready, should be alert, be busy, be serving and occupying until Christ comes. You know, Christ told them, he says, it's not for you to know when I'm coming. And so you just be ready. You got work to do. I'm going to give you the power to do it. You be about that work, about that business, you know. Uh, and there's always always talk uh, of the end times. Uh, well, yes, we are in the end times. Uh, John in his epistle says, my little children, it's the last days, you know. We know it's the end times. Uh, and those times could come at any moment, you know. Think of those coal miners that just recently were killed. In an instant, they're standing in God's presence. You know, let me pray and hope that they knew Jesus as their Lord and Savior, that they were prepared to stand in His presence. Verse 8, he says, And you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. The proper mission is what is needed. We are to be witnesses of Christ. First John chapter 1, verses 1 and 3. Um, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, what we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also. So we're to witness for Christ. We're to proclaim what he's done for us. And as a Christian, you know, you don't decide what kind, of, you don't decide to be a witness. You just decide what kind you're going to be. You're either a good one, you're either a bad one, or you're an indifferent one. The word witness in the Greek is, and I'm not sure how to explain it, martyres, from which we get our word martyr. Originally, this word meant a witness, but so many Christians died giving testimony that it became synonymous with dying. So if you're walking in the Spirit, you have the power to be a dramatic and effective witness. So we need to be a witness. Verses 9 through 11. And after he had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going... Behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. They also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. Well, the next thing we would need is the proper motivation. You know, Jesus is coming back. If we're going to do anything for him, we have to do it now. Second uh, Corinthians chapter 5, verses 9 through 11 says, Therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. Do we want to be pleasing to him? For we, for we, must, all appear, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for the deeds of for his deeds in the body 
according to what he has done, whether good or bad. In Colossians 4.17, Paul says, Take heed to the ministry which you have received in the Lord, that you may feel it, that you may fulfill it. You know, Christ could come at any time. We need to finish the work Christ has given us. We need to take advantage of all the tools God has given us. We have everything we need. The only thing missing is the commitment to use those tools for His glory. Acts chapter 17, verse 6 says this, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. How did the early church turn the world upside down? Now, I don't know about you, but I would love to see the Christian body here in Fallon turn Fallon upside down. You know, as Rick shared, there's like 24,000 people, if you just go by the numbers here, that have not been reached for Christ. You know, so... I don't know about you, but I would love to see that happen. So how did this, uh, how did the early church turn the world upside down? I'd like to read you a little uh, section out of a commentary here. It's the one by an Acts by James Montgomery Boyce. He says here, I do not sense that Christians today are always fully aware of how thoroughly the plan was carried out by the first generation of the church. The entire pagan world acknowledged as fact the early Christian apologists' claim that Christianity had permeated everywhere. Tertullian, who wrote around the year 200, declared in his apology, We are, of but, we are but of yesterday, and we have filled every place among you, cities, Islands, fortresses, towns, marketplaces, the very camp, tribes, companies, palace, senate, forum. We have left nothing to you but the temple of your gods. Historians have asked how this first generation of Christians, who for the most part were unlearned men and women, could have propagated the gospel so rapidly. Adolf Harnack, a German church historian of the 19th century, knew how. He said, We cannot hesitate to believe that the great mission of Christianity was in reality accomplished by means of informal missionaries. That was the secret. Every Christian, not just a formal order of missionaries, supplied by the Christians at home, considered it his or her obligation to bear witness. Get that? Every Christian considered it his or her obligation to bear witness. You know, I think there are a lot of things that we can do to bear witness. You know, we've got neighbors, I've got co-workers, neighbors, family, friends. You know, there are a lot of ways we can bear witness. There's a lot of ways we can get out there and proclaim the excellencies of Christ. 
There's a lot of ministry opportunities in this town, in this community here in Fallon. And a lot are involved in that, and I praise God for that. But we need to pray for the Holy Spirit to empower us, for the Holy Spirit to use us, to fill us, that when we proclaim His Word, Christ, you know, the Holy Spirit is one empowering that Word. He's bringing that Word with conviction. And He's converting souls. You know, and I think we need to do that. And uh, as Bill brought up earlier, as he read that passage, I was uh, at first thinking about it, and I was like, oh, okay. No, what are the the importance of prayer? You know, and I think that's an area where we're lacking a lot too, is prayer. You know, we've been meeting every night on Wednesday for prayer, and uh, you know, we pray for a lot of different things. But you know what? It seems like our praise column and uh, praying for somebody's salvation that column's pretty small. You know, I would like it to take up more pages. You know, could we pray for my neighbor? Uh, could we pray for, you know, like I'll give you some to pray for. My coworker, Steve Van Meter. You know, I've been praying for him. <clears throat> and, you know, I just keep giving him God's word. I keep planting scripture and taking opportunities, and you know, and... This gentleman's pretty rough around the edges. Has lived a rough life. And uh, when he first uh, became my co-worker, they were talking and saying, well, I wonder who's going to change who here. And, uh, you know, <laughs> I'm not going to change him, but God can. And... Uh, now people come up and says, boy, I don't know what you're doing to Steve, but man, he's different. So before, I could only put up with a few minutes from him, but now I can kind of stand him, you know. So, you know, there's a, there's a work of God. There's a work of God. And, and uh, some more you can pray for. My mom and dad. Name... Don and Kathy Young. That's J-U-N-G. And, you know, I've been praying for them for years. And I've witnessed to them. I've shared with them. And, uh, you know, just recently I was thinking about it, you know. Lord, because I've, I've given my dad the gospel message plainly numerous times. And, uh, you know, he kind of has a... a Hindu type view, you know, yeah, I'm a sinner, but when I come back in another life, I'll get better, get reincarnated. But, you know, I told my dad, I says, you know, this is it, dad, you know, this is your chance to get right with Christ, you know, you can come to Christ right now, you know, and maybe I just better back up a bit here, and, you know, if there's unbelievers present, uh, you know, God is there. God is real. Um, God is in my heart, in my life, and I'm praising for that. And, you know, God is holy and just. And, uh, you know, the prophet Isaiah in his vision, 
when you come into his presence. You know, here's a righteous, holy man. And what does he say? Woe is me, for I'm a man of unclean lips. You know, you cannot be in God's presence with sin. And uh, John the Baptist, when he came, what did he say? Repent. Christ proclaimed and said, repent. The apostles said, repent. Repent from what? Repent from your sin. You know, sin. What is sin? Sin is what violates God's holy standard. Adam and Eve, when they disobeyed God, in particular the fruit of the knowledge of good and the tree of evil, that was sin. They died spiritually that day. God sacrificed animals. and said he provided animal skins for their covering. Sin, you know, the Ten Commandments, it's a violation of that. You know, have you ever told a lie? Yeah, you know a lie. Told a lie. Have you ever hated somebody? You know, Christ equates that to murder. In other words, we are sinners. We are deserving of God's wrath. And it doesn't matter what got you to that point, you know, other influences in your life, society, whatever, you're going to stand before Christ on your own, give an account. And you got to, you know, how are you going to do that? In Matthew chapter 5, verse 48, it says, Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. That's the standard, folks, perfection. It's not become, some like to twist that, it's be. You have to presently be perfect. Well, guess what? We cannot. But if you come to Christ, who came? He is God, God in flesh. He came, took on a body. He lived the perfect life. He died on the cross. He suffered the wrath of God. And if you think that was no big deal, How do you explain the Garden of Gethsemane? It was a big deal to Christ. He shed, he was weeping, he was looking at that, that God was going to pour out his wrath on him. And you think about it, all the sins of the world were placed on Christ. And what did he cry out from the cross? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You know, it was a big deal. So if you think you're going to stand before God on your own, you're greatly mistaken, folks. You need Christ. You need his perfection. And in Hebrews, it says we are perfected in Christ. He's our perfection. And as I said earlier, you know, as a Christian, you're placed in Christ. The Holy Spirit takes you. And grafts you into Christ. So his life should start flowing out of you. There should be some evidence of that in your life. You know, what does that come by? It doesn't come by persuasive arguments. It doesn't come by, you know, me trying to twist your arm and make you do it. I can't. It comes by the convicting power of the Holy Spirit. In John chapter 3, 
What did Christ tell Nicodemus? You know, Nicodemus came to him and he said, you know, here's a Pharisee. He's the elite of the religious class of the time. And he says, we know you came from God. No one can do these things unless God is with him. You know, he recognized the good in Christ. But what did, you know, but did he have faith in Christ? What did Christ tell him? He says, you must be born again. And that's a work of the Holy Spirit. And as I shared earlier in Romans there, faith comes by hearing, hearing by the Word of God. So we're to give folks the Word of God and let the Holy Spirit use that in their lives. And if you place your faith on Christ, in Christ, if you accept Him as your Lord and Savior, He will come into your life. He, you will be sealed with the Holy Spirit. And then as you go out to witness, you will be filled with the Holy Spirit to share the gospel message with others. But you, you, know, you need to repent. You need to return, turn to Him. So anyway, back to my, my mom and dad. You know, I have been praying for them a long time. And I've given that gospel message to my father in a very clear way and uh, you know I was like you know I'm not kind of getting discouraged here lately and not feeling like it was being successful so I've been praying recently that God would bring Christian influence into my mom and dad's life and I've been praying that. And uh, the other day, my brother calls me. And uh, he's 20 years younger than me. And uh, when he was growing up, he would always ask me, well, how come you don't go to the Mormon church anymore? And what's the difference? And uh, I told my mom, I says, I'm going to tell him the truth. And she didn't say no, so I kept giving the word. And now him and his family are Christians, and they attend church regularly at uh, Calvary Chapel there in Sparks. But anyway, he gives me a call, and he tells me, you know, I've been calling my, you know, every time I call him, I've been talking to him, and I share God's word with him, and I pray with him. And the other day, my dad had to go into the VA hospital for a procedure, and he says, you know, I went with dad to the VA, and I prayed with him before he went in for the surgery. So, seeds are being planted. And then a while back, I get this, uh, I'm, I'm, so the, the fruit of this and the importance of prayer and why this is important coming up Thursday. You know, I've been getting emails from my sister, from my dad, about Christian things. You know, sharing these neat Christian things. Well, one that my dad sent to me was called Big Tom. And it was about this school in the coal mining country in the early 1900s, I believe. And there was a teacher that had came, and, and the students there were all a bunch of boys that were really rough and mean. And the guy that hired him said, you know, all these boys have beat up and ran off the previous teachers. 
And so this teacher said, okay, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go for it anyway. So the first day he got there and it was a beginning class and there was a, you know, disruptiveness and hollering and he says, you know, boys, if we're to have any kind of uh, teaching going on here, we're going to have to have some rules. So why don't you make up the rules? And one hollered out, okay, uh, no stealing. And, you know, I can't remember all of them, but, but they came up with ten rules. And they put him on the board. And uh, anyway, sure enough, second day, this uh, one rule was broken with no stealing because somebody had stolen Big Tom's lunchbox. And they said, okay, who did it? Who, who did it? Who stole it? And finally came out this little scrawny kid had stolen it. And he said... Uh, you know, he was caught red-handed. They knew he was caught. I mean, he had a big heavy coat on. And the teacher says, come on up. And the, and the punishment was ten strokes of a rod. That was the punishment. You know, they, didn't, they spanked back then. Anyway, he said, teacher, please don't make me take my coat off, please. He says, why? You, know, you have to take your coat off. You know, you, have, you can only have your shirt. You have to take your coat off. And uh, finally, the little boy took his coat off. He didn't have a shirt. And the teacher, oh, how am I going to whip this? And he was a sickly little boy, you know. He says, how come you don't have a shirt? Well, my daddy died. My mama don't have much money, and the shirt I have is being washed today, so I'm wearing my brother's coat. And he says, well, I'm going to lose control here if I don't uh, carry out this punishment. And uh, all of a sudden, <laughs> Big Tom gets up says, I'll take the beating for him. And the teacher commenced to beating Big Tom. And after the fifth stroke, the rod broke. The teacher kind of turned away. How am I going to keep, how am I going to continue this? And then he heard weeping. And he turned around. And this little boy had jumped up. Big Tom's neck. Says, Big Tom, thank you for taking my beating. I'm sorry I stole your lunch. I was hungry. But I'm going to love you till the day I die. You know, Jesus took our beating. And at the end of that was this passage from Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 53, verses 4. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. 
the chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging, we are healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. I got that from my dad. It's just, my brother called me, and I was praising him, praising God, you know, when I heard that. I said, you know, okay, James, you're an answer to prayer. That's an answer to prayer. And this morning I woke up, and it just, you know, God brought it to my memory, and I just <laughs> started weeping. I couldn't help it, you know. And the song today, standing in awe of God. Are we standing in awe of what Christ has done for us on the cross? You know, are we out there proclaiming those excellencies of Him? You know, I don't know about you, but I need to ask God to forgive me for being lax in that. So please come this Thursday to the prayer. It's important. And let's pray that God would pour out His Spirit upon us, that He would empower us. You know, if there's sin in your life, get that confessed. You know, Keep short accounts with God so that he can use you in a powerful way. Let's close in prayer. Father, I just uh, do thank you and praise you for your word. I praise you, Lord, for working in the lives of Christians, for granting them rebirth, for granting them repentance for working in their lives or grafting us into Christ. And then, Lord, I just ask that you would bless that we would be conduits of the life of Christ in us, that we would not hinder that flow. Lord, that you would fill us, that you would empower us, that you would use us in mighty ways. And, Lord, I just ask that you would give us opportunities to share your word. And, Lord, it doesn't matter at what stage in our walk we are. If we're saved, Lord, we can share how God saved us with somebody. Lord, just use us in a mighty way. Lord, I ask that you would work in our body, that you would grow us in our love for you, that you would grow us in our love for one another, and, Lord, that you would give us a burden and a love and a concern for the lost here in our community. I ask these things in Jesus Christ's holy name. Amen.